Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for the second of two podcasts is Mark Bomford, who is the director of the Yale Sustainable Food Project, which he took over as of October of 2011. Prior to that, he was in Canada doing a number of things in Vancouver and British, well, in Victoria, British Columbia, and then at the University of British Columbia. And he's been a real pioneer on food and sustainability issues. So, Mark, welcome. Glad to have you here. Thanks, Kelly. It's good to be here. So we've talked in our previous podcasts about the importance of sustainability to world stability and the environment and human health and the like. And now let's talk a little bit more, if, you, if you'd be willing, on local initiatives that are going on around this issue, because it's so important. Certainly big policies, national government thinking about these are important. But a lot of those things start at the local level and, and are things that you've been deeply involved in. So can you talk just a little bit about some of the local sustainability things that are going on? And you could use the Yale Sustainable Food Project as an example. And then I'd like to ask you some particular questions about them as we go along. Yeah, absolutely. There's been an explosion of interest and action around uh, sustainable food systems, around civic agriculture, around alternative food systems, very much at the local and regional level. And over the last 10 years, the growth in these initiatives has been quite astonishing. Uh, The term urban food renaissance is one that we talked about in the last podcast, and I'm quite fond of as a way to describe this blossoming that we've seen. Now, some of those are what you see for new markets. You see new farmers markets opening up. You see box schemes, and those can be the community-supported agriculture model or CSA model where a consumer subscribes to a box each week. But they can also be enlarged where an institution is a client that subscribes to the produce or where an entire uh, strata in an apartment building, for example, might be a large-scale subscriber to a uh, box coming from a local producer. You also find uh, other markets uh, either in the semi-wholesale realm where a small restaurant, where a small grocery store is able to build their niche, build their brand and identity around local. The emergence of the word locavore into our vocabulary is something which is quite new. You couldn't have said it 10 years ago and have people understand what you meant. But now, of course, that interest in local has shaped the way that Uh, food distributors and marketers, large and small, are actually approaching and engaging the public. Local is popular and with good reason. Um, All of these initiatives, and they extend from the distribution to the production and urban agriculture, the education that we're now seeing through the school system from K through 12 into the universities. Um, This is new stuff, but I think the reason that it is blossoming so quickly is because food is such a wonderful convener. I consider food the great convener as a way that you actually bring people together, quite literally bring people to the table who otherwise would not be uh, attracted to talk about issues. And that, I think, is why in food we've got an opportunity that we may not have had when we were talking about larger global environmental problems that were attached to something that didn't have the same kind of tangible personal peace happening on a day-to-day basis. So if you're trying to talk to people about climate change, for example, 
there's no daily ritual where you recognize uh, the CO2 that you are expelling and the CO2 which is coming from your daily activities. There's not something which is kind of embedded culturally where we uh, note and give thanks to and enjoy the presence of CO2 flux in our life. It doesn't work that way. Food, though, that's something where three times a day, if we are fortunate, we've got something that has personal significance, community significance, cultural significance, and that provides the convening place to start to talk about these issues. So when you begin to ask uh, what's happening uh, today, what's happening at the local level, what's happening in urban centers, the reason I think it's hard to give you a comprehensive list why there are so many initiatives happening is just because of that convening power of food. It's something that spurs innovation in a way that I don't necessarily see in other sectors. And I think it's because you've got that constant three times a day reminder. You've got that constant three times a day convening with other people where you actually have to ask the questions. uh, What are we going to eat? Why does it matter? Where is it coming from? What are the impacts? How can we do this better? It's got that iterative quality to it, which is a wonderful way to develop new initiatives. So you've talked about uh, community-supported agriculture, farmers markets as an example of local sustainability initiatives. Could you tell us about the Yale Sustainable Food Project and what it does as an example? Yeah, the Yale Sustainable Food Project was an innovator, a bit of a pioneer when it came to tackling these big system-wide issues within an academic institution. It's interesting that the Yale Sustainable Food Project emerged at Yale, which is not a traditional agricultural university. Uh, We don't have land-grant status. We don't have an agricultural college. The message of starting a project like this at Yale is that this is bigger than agriculture. This is something that everybody should be concerned with because the food system is not just a production issue. It is the whole question of the health of all the people who are getting the food, making sure that they're getting the food at the right time, and the disciplines that need to be engaged to make that system robust and to make it sustainable, as we're talking about, that goes way beyond agricultural production. We need to engage disciplines of law. We need to engage the people who are going to be our future policy makers, the economists, the healthcare professionals, and the health policy makers. We need to involve the sciences through the life sciences and the social sciences and all these areas. These are the gaps in the food system and the ones that Yale is actually very well positioned to make a significant contribution to. So the Yale Sustainable Food Project, I think, recognized that opportunity, saying here's what we can do as a non-agricultural university, and those contributions could be uh, very, very important to a food system that lacks all of these pieces. So we started very much from the students because that's going to be the core of it, is how we're engaging the students to think about these things in a way that they otherwise wouldn't in the classroom. And we did that by starting a campus farm which was kind of exciting that you could actually have a university farm at a non-agricultural university. And again, it drives home that message that food is something which is not just central to a university's operation or something that provides the calories to keep people thinking. It's actually the object of learning and the object of study. It is the outdoor classroom. It's the living laboratory. It's all of those things. And so we extended from that student-based farm where we started cultivating vegetables, we started selling them through the farmer's markets into a really comprehensive education program. And this went through our lecture series, and we had lots of good visiting speakers. We held conferences and colloquia. We intersected with the classroom activity so that the curriculum took on uh, sustainable food issues in a way that was really engaging, really rewarding for the students. But we also utilized that farm site in a way to do the kind of learning that it's very difficult to do in the classroom. 
So the farm raises food. How does it interact with the the food systems within the university then? Well, actually, to begin with, one of the early initiatives that Yale Sustainable Food Project took on was looking at Yale Dining and asking, how can we make Yale Dining sustainable? And after a uh, very successful pilot project in Berkeley uh, Hall, where the portion of food that was identified as sustainable coming into it through new connections that were built by the Yale Sustainable Food Project, where that went as high as uh, half, maybe even 60% of the food that was served in that dining hall. It was met with such an incredible response from the students who were uh, actually drawn to the dining hall. They were enjoying what they were getting. You know, they were they were lining up to get in there. They were forging IDs to pretend they were members of Berkeley College in order to get access to this food. Um, there was all sorts of things that sent the message that, okay, yeah, this this does go beyond a purely academic study. It does go beyond uh, an insular project. This is something that's of interest to the whole academic community. And now those sustainability initiatives have kind of worked their way through Yale Dining as a whole. But there's still much more that we could do, um, not just in making sure that we're practicing what we preach in terms of sustainability in Yale dining, but also that we are moving forward the study of food systems so that what's happening with all those sustainability initiatives in the dining halls, that we're actually learning about it so that we can progress on this, that we can push the boundaries, I think, of discovery and understanding of how the food system works and where those impacts are felt. Because we've got lots of wonderful anecdotal evidence. We've got all these testimonials. We've got students whose lives were changed. They've changed their career paths. Their eyes have been opened. They're seeing the world in a new way. They know where their food comes from, and that changes the way they look at the world, changes the way they eat, and changes the way that they uh, interact with their careers and their communities on a day-to-day basis. I mean, the testimonials have been wonderful, but we want to advance that I guess, uh, you know, these sort of case studies into something more comprehensive to ask, okay, these have seen success at the individual level. What are the roots um, that have the most impact when we start to scale them up into a community? And that is what we can do very well at Yale, is we can ask those questions, we can do that research, we can discover those areas where we've got high impact policy potential. And uh, that's kind of exciting. And I think that may be one of the next natural steps for the Yale Sustainable Food Project. You know, we've got reform in the dining halls, we've got the campus farm, we've got these curricular activities throughout the whole undergraduate learning experience, we've got the engagement, the lectures, all this kind of stuff. So let's look a little bit more at the successes of these initiatives and ask which are the most successful and why and to what ends and how is this changing behavior. And that's where we can start to have application to a bigger system, to the city of New Haven, to the region, the state of Connecticut, the whole sort of metropolitan eastern seaboard, and then beyond, of course, to the world. These are important lessons that I think we need to uh, engage with communities around the world and as they grapple with how to make their own food system sustainable. One thing I've heard you mention is that um, a promising frontier in the, the march toward better sustainability has to do with institutional purchasing practices. And you explain what you mean by that. And how institutions such as a university or a business might have an impact on sustainability by what it chooses to buy. Absolutely. The way that institutions run their food systems, I think, is one of the uh, next great hopeful frontiers of food system reform. Because when you look at all of the successes 
that the direct farm marketing movement has had in cities. If you look at the explosion of farmers markets of those CSAs, if you look at the explosion of restaurants that are uh, purchasing local food and organic food and hinging their identity on sustainable sourcing, that growth has been tremendous. You know, it's been double digit growth year after year. And the statistics look good when you look at it from just uh, without reference to the outside. But in fact, it's still such a small proportion of the overall food system. We're looking at about $1.7 billion in sales. That's estimated as going through these new innovative direct marketing channels. $1.7 billion from your farmers markets and your CSAs and so forth. That compares to about a $350 billion food economy in this country. And so you're looking at about half a percentage. That's not a very significant player when it comes to food system reform and changing the whole shape of production and diet and consumption and system. So there's some challenges with scaling these things up. Uh, 7,000 farmers markets today in the country doesn't necessarily mean that 700,000 farmers markets down the road is a sustainable food system. There's some inherent challenges, mostly bottlenecks in transportation and uh, the fragmentation of some of those distribution systems. However, institutions, that's working at a different scale. An institution like Yale is in its food system it's, it's a small city. And what we can do here is look at a uh, bulk purchasing arrangement. We can look at a mid-scale system where we'll be able to have a farmer that would be able to supply a system, get some certainty and guarantee about having a larger scale, long-standing contract, for example. There can be a back and forth then. There can be dialogue from the uh, purchaser who has a considerable amount of power to figure out what are the particular things, the standards that we want to adhere to, the improvements in the way that this farmer is producing food. They can dictate that. They can dictate it both with a uh, fair price for those practices, but they can also dictate it just out of size and clout and the stability that that represents as a uh, in that in that buyer seller relationship. So an institution has huge power there to affect change in uh, the stability of its suppliers, the practices of its suppliers. So you can pick all of these things that you want to address in food system stability, sustainability, and an institution can have an impact. And how is that different from the way institutional food systems typically work? So if Yale, Yale could reach a negotiation with a farmer to provide lettuce or beef or whatever it happens to be, how does it usually work? Well, usually universities separate their operations from their academics. So the idea tends to be that, well, the academics, the faculty members, the students, all of these uh, folks are over on one side, and they can uh, you know, pursue learning and push the boundaries of discovery and research and all this kind of thing. But that the operations side, the people who keep the university fed and keep the buildings, the lights on and the uh, landscaping uh, looking uh, nice and being safe for its inhabitants, basically the people who keep the whole university running, that's entirely separate from the academics. Now, the effect of that on the food system is that it is uh, kind of run by uh, what is the cheapest. Um, there's not necessarily the input coming from the academic side to say, here's the valuable 
research questions that we want to answer. Here's the important and imperative public goals that we need to address. Here's what we need to do for the environment and all that kind of stuff. Those boundaries uh, traditionally are difficult to cross. Now that has changed at Yale. It's not so much that we're in two separate camps, but it needs to change more. So the opportunity that we've got is to have the academics who um, are engaged, uh, hopefully, with their communities enough to understand what the community priorities are, what the large-scale and small-scale environmental, social, economic priorities are, is to work in partnership with the food service providers to map out a little bit of a future vision, to say, okay, here's what we can do uh, for the operations to um, address the health research questions to address the environmental priorities, all these kind of things. We can work together on that so that rather than just being um, a replication of the industry standard driven largely by costs that don't reflect the full cost of food, as we discussed, that those food system uh, providers, dining, for example, they can be innovators hand-in-hand hand, uh, with the academics and with the students. And we can bridge that gap enough so that the food system on the campus can also be an object of study where we can learn all the lessons that can then be applied to the communities at large. And this is an opportunity that other institutions don't necessarily have. At Yale and at academic institutions, we have a mandate to ask the difficult questions, to figure out what's going on, to actually get the information that's needed and the models that are needed to make the kind of public policy and the kind of larger scale decisions that are going to benefit society. So we've actually got that mandate. It's written into our job descriptions, right? So we need to uh, find a way to bridge the operations and the academics to the degree that our systems here are not just business as usual, but rather they are pushing the boundary. They are uh, prototypical, but we're also asking how well they work so that they're under constant refinement so that the information that we supply out there to the region can be constantly improved upon. So bring those things together so that we are pushing the boundaries of discovery, of understanding, of characterizing the food system, and knowing what kind of things work well. One thing that you mentioned earlier that I'd like to expand on just a bit is that how powerful an experience with a food system like this can be in the lives of individuals. They're human stories to be told about all this, and I know you must have a long list of them, but it'd be interesting to hear what some of those stories are. That I mean, we're talking about institutional buying patterns and sustainability and the planet running out of food and climate change. These are all big concepts, but they're not they're not stories of individuals, but I know you've intersected with hundreds and hundreds of people now on these local food initiatives, and you've talked about how it changes lives. Could you give us an example or two of that? Well, some examples that I can think of from UBC, and actually these examples run beyond the experience in the post-secondary institutions and go all the way down to the elementary schools, and I've done a lot of work in the school system as well. It's something which uh, has given a lot of people hope that they did not have before engaging food in this way. At universities in particular, you know, in general, if someone is coming to the university and they are full of concern, I think, about the future of the planet, they're concerned about the uh, inequalities that exist, the environmental pressures that are uh, on us on a global scale and all that kind of thing, they can go into those lecture halls and they can emerge with good reason thoroughly depressed. So, Coming down to um, at UBC, the UBC farm, for example, and starting to work through with some of these people right there on site how for every challenge that was thrown at them in the lecture hall, we had a solution in the field. 
right? So if someone was in the lecture hall and they were learning basically about climate change and they were learning about uh, the trends and didn't see a way out, we could take them down to the farm. We could kind of say, well, here's the trials that we're doing on uh, low tillage agriculture. Here's where we're measuring all of the CO2 fluxes that are coming from different polycultures producing grains. Here's the new um, low input, high diversity biofuel mix that we're working on, something which is uh, kind of moving us to the next level of uh, energy alternatives um, and something which is turning the food system not just into something that does less damage, but into a net contributor, something which is actually taking in more carbon than it puts out. You know, we would tell these stories and it would open people's eyes and sort of say, oh, okay, everything that I was basically feeling gloomy and hopeless about in the classroom, I now feel that as an individual, I've got a stake in this. And what ended up is we had a lot of people who were actually in other disciplines who turned their career path around. We had uh, an architect who came down there with sort of a, uh, I think a, maybe a passing interest in architecture who had come down for an orientation because they had to build an overnight shelter as part of their student orientation on the farm. And after learning about this, uh, they switched faculties, uh, moved out of architecture, moved into uh, agroecology, mm -hmm. and ended up becoming a very successful uh, farmer uh, just north of town in Vancouver. And it kind of gave them this new lease on life where they sort of saw like a, a halfway point where they might be able to make a piddling difference, I suppose, but it didn't actually make that connection to, okay, here's how my career can have that direct benefit uh, and here's how I can have control over it too it was that tangible um, it was that tangible benefit sort of saying I can see every day how my career is benefiting the world and how I'm making a difference and how that's in my control so so that was kind of good you but but then the eye-opening stories as well especially coming from the kids who have grown up in apartments all their lives and it's their first experience uh, dealing with soil dealing with the fact that there's things living in that soil, dealing with the fact that there's earthworms there, and you see them on their first visit, and it's all trepidation and gloves and fear, and they don't want to get too close to it. They don't want to touch it. And they that that moves, and eventually they're embracing it. The, the first time that they actually eat something which is on a growing plant, there's, there's disbelief. Uh, you tell a student, for example, oh, there's a ripe strawberry. Have a ripe strawberry. It's yummy. And they're, they're first looking at you, as though uh, you're, you're talking about something which is crazy, you you can you can eat a plant, you you can eat a plant just out here in the wild, and it's that disbelief which moves into kind of like the uh, uh, the scales falling from the eyes, I suppose. One of these things where the, a whole new world is basically opened up, and then by the end of a week in doing this, of course, they are uh, happily, you know, munching on everything they can find in the garden. Uh, they know the names of everything. They're uh, really excited about it. They're coming home, and they're, they, they want veggies all of a sudden. They're telling their parents that veggies are something they're really excited about. They're asking their parents to buy more veggies. They're coming back, and they're playing with earthworms. They're giving them names, all of these kind of things. It was something which was like a foreign, alien, and scary world on day one. And by day seven, it's changing the way they're eating. It's changing the way they're thinking about their interaction with the environment. And our hope is that you can take all these stories that you see played out again and again and again when students have their first interaction in the garden. Our hope is that those uh, will have an impact down the line, that uh, after they spend a week on the farm or after they spend a year going through the classroom programs um, and they're excited about veggies, we're hoping that that 
actually continue so that when they're heading out and they're making meals on their own for the first time, and this is one of the things that we engage our university students with a lot is how when they begin to cook, how do we uh, um, get that message that, hey, you can you can cook plants um, and you can cook whole foods and all these kind of things. We want to know for the students who had that experience and had that kind of wonderful eye-opening aha moment, how does that proceed later in life? What kind of eater do they become? How, what's their relationship with food like? And so the opportunity here to move from the initial story that gives you hope into the broader uh, implications of what happens when we play out this story again and again and again across uh, a larger group of people. How does that affect our relationship with the environment and how does that actually affect our overall environmental impact and the sustainability of our food and our agricultural system? And not to mention that the children are, of course, the next generation of teachers and clergy and politicians and all these people who will in turn have big impact on these food systems. Absolutely. It's not just about training farmers anymore. We need to train farmers, but um, all of these fields play a role, and we've all got to be working on this to make the food system work. From the day it was born, I was impressed by the passion and the dedication, intelligence, and insight the people involved with the Yale Sustainable Food Project had. And it's really nice to see that it's in such good hands now. And to the extent there are more Mark Bomfords out there doing this kind of work around the world, uh, we could see a very positive future. Uh, But boy, is this work important. So congratulations for what you've done. I look forward to even more contact with you. And thanks so much for joining us today. Likewise. Thanks a lot. It was great to be uh, here this morning and chatting. Our guest today was Mark Bomford director of the Yale Sustainable Food Project and well-known expert on sustainable food systems. I welcome you to visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org, and there you'll find lots of resources about food and food policy issues, an email newsletter that gets sent at no charge monthly, and then also, of course, links to the other excellent visitors who have recorded podcasts with us. Thank you.